Morning Liberty. Well, hello there, everybody. My name is Nate, and this is Good Morning Liberty. Today, Charlie is not with me, but I'm just going to be doing this all by myself. And let me tell you what, it's going to be a good show, because last night, I had the painful duty of watching the Democratic debate with those 12 candidates on stage, all of them fighting over which one of them is going to be better at giving you someone else's money. It was a very, very harsh debate, and we've got a lot of good clips pulled from it right now. So first off, I want to tell you guys, subscribe to the podcast. You might just be listening to this on our website, which a lot of people do. Hit the subscribe button on the website, or if you this is your first time listening to it on the phone, just hit that subscribe button, and that's just going to send our show directly to your phone tomorrow when we release a new episode. Doesn't charge any money, nothing like that. Just, you know, makes everything easier. So, before we get started with the clips from the debate, we're going to do some news. Okay, so I picked out a few, a few stories here I thought maybe you guys would find interesting. This one from Bloomberg. A 32-year-old female CEO's startup gets a $3.2 billion valuation. Okay, so that's pretty good. Australian online design platform Canva Inc. today announced it has raised $85 million, led by Mary Meeker's venture capital firm, bolstering its valuation to $3.2 billion. That makes the company... Co-founded by 32-year-old Chief Executive Officer Melanie Perkins, one of the most valuable female-led technology startups in the world. Man, and little did she know that by creating that company, she would immediately become a terrible, terrible, greedy person who must be stopped. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was her goal, but she has finally made it to that point where You know, that's your goal in life is to finally get somewhere where everyone will hate you. Yeah. Good job. Good job, Melanie. This from the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) This is a, uh, this is ridiculous. Okay. Cape Cod study finds no easy way to stop shark attacks. Okay. They did a study on this. A new study considered everything from kelp forest barriers to seal contraception to ward off sharks along Cape Cod's beaches, but found no magic bullet method for guaranteeing public safety. Instead, the study, which several local towns helped launch after a deadly shark attack last year, amplified a message Cape Codders have already had to digest. The only way to completely avoid sharks is to stay on dry land. (laughs) Uh, The report from Woods Hole Group, Inc. found some potential utility in methods like buoys to detect tag sharks, but also warned that merely spotting sharks swimming near people may not reduce attacks. This is a quote, modifying human behavior may be the most effective form of mitigating shark-human interaction, said the 192-page study, which Cape Cod officials are set to release early Wednesday. So they they, they did a study, several towns Chipped into this study, by the way. I don't know how much money this spent. I don't know if you can get that information. But they chipped in to do this study on what they could do to stop shark attacks. And little did they know the best option to not get eaten by a shark is to not go into the shark's house. That's that's really it. That's, that's the only answer. Listen, I've been traumatized since I was a little kid um, because I watched 
Jaws like all the time. It, like every time that my aunt would babysit me, we would watch Jaws. That was just like the movie that we watched. I've been scared of sharks when I got into a swimming pool, literally. So, I mean, not now, not really now, but when I was little. I mean, seriously, they had to do a study to figure out that the only way to mitigate shark-human interaction is to not go into the ocean. Okay, I'm glad we found that out. I'm sure those were the people's tax dollars well spent. This is from Fox News. Uber and Lyft anger Congress by skipping a congressional hearing. That's right. Uber and Lyft skipped their day before Congress. The ride-sharing companies declined to make a Wednesday appearance before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee's subcommittee on highway and transit. The hearing, and this is the hearing's name, examining the future of transportation network companies, challenges, and opportunities. This hearing delved into the issues that affect the ride-sharing industry. And this is from one of the representatives. Uber and Lyft have missed an important opportunity for them, but that will not stop this committee or the subcommittees from doing their duties. That's Representative Eleanor Holmes, Norton Democrat, uh, out of D.C., actually. So Uber and Lyft just didn't go. They're, they're doing this, this congressional hearing probably to find the best ways that they can tax and regulate Uber and Lyft. And Uber and Lyft are just like, hey, um, I, we're busy. We got other stuff going on right now, okay? Like running our billion-dollar businesses where we've helped people be able to get rides when they otherwise would not have been able to do it. And we've helped millions of people make money by logging onto an app on their phone and driving around their car. Okay, Uh, we're busy. You guys can spend all of your days crafting really good subcommittee names, if that's what you want to do, but we got to go run our business. There's a good testament to uh, the private market being more efficient for you. And then the last one, Fox News. I don't know if you guys saw this last night, but Ron Reagan, Ron Reagan, topped the Google search during the Democratic debate. I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. It's not for what I thought it was, because I actually searched for Ronald Reagan during the debate last night. And I'll tell you guys why in a minute. But anyway, there was this commercial last night, and it, had, it was something like the foundation for, it's like the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And I know the commercial was for shock value, really. Uh, but the, the foundation's point is to completely separate uh, government and religion, and they're including uh, with public schools. Now, a lot of people might not like that. Sometimes you might think that teachers should uh, maybe teach the Bible. I've heard people say this before, but there's a danger in this. There's a danger in picking a religion. First off, even Christianity has got like 75 subcommittee religions underneath it, that people disagree on different things. So now you've got all that. What if you've got a what if you've got a Methodist teaching your kids the Bible? I mean, come on, now you're going to be upset about that. You you uh, you know Southern Baptist. So anyway, it's not a great idea for anything involving government to have anything to do with religion at all. Because if you allow the teaching of one religion, well, are you going to be okay if your uh, if your son has a Muslim teacher? Are you going to be okay with them teaching religion? Is that really what you want? No. Don't bring religion into the schools. Just just don't do it. The founding fathers said this, in fact. 
they really did want separation of church and state. And it's not just so your kids don't get any religion. It was so the government would never have any rules and regulations put upon religions. Teach your kids religion at your house. If anyone is going to teach your kids religion, it should be you, or it should be the preacher at your church, or the Sunday school, any of those things. The last person in the world you want teaching your kids religion is someone who works for the government. Trust me. Just don't do it. Now, this is why I searched Ronald Reagan last night. I actually thought this was the reason, but... but um. Anyway, uh, last night they were talking about the candidates and especially Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and just how freaking old they are, which is really old. And, you know, uh, Joe Biden would be turning 80 during his presidency. Now, that wouldn't make him the oldest. Uh, Actually, Ronald Reagan was the oldest. So I remember that Ronald Reagan had this really funny response during the debate when they asked him about his age and whether or not it was a factor. And he turned it around on his election opponent, who was Walter Mondale. He turned it around on him, who Walter Walter Mondale at this time is like 65 years old during the debate. And Reagan did what he was really good at doing, which was delivering a really good one-liner. Let me play that for you real quick. Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that was that was really smart. Really smart of him, for sure. Good response. So he decided to turn it around and say that he was not going to exploit Walter Mondale, who was like 65 years old. He was not going to exploit his youth and inexperience compared to Ronald Reagan. Really funny. So that's why I searched Ronald Reagan during the debate last night. But anyway... Let's talk about some of the things that went down during this debate. Now, you can, you really already, you know what went down. I mean, everyone listening, you guys all know exactly what they said. Uh, Higher taxes, rich people are evil. Uh, Climate change is going to kill us all in 10 years. We got to take everyone's guns. Only we're going to say that that's not what we're doing, but that's what we're going to do. They had all these things, your typical talking points. <clears throat> but I wanted to I wanted to point out a few things and kind of give some responses to them. So so maybe maybe it's a way that you haven't heard people respond to these things before. Maybe it's a new way of approaching it and it can help you when you're being a keyboard warrior online, when you're talking to people. Maybe you're talking to your family about the debate, anything like that. So let's just go over a few things. The first thing I wanted to go over was this have you guys noticed that Elizabeth Warren and they've pointed this out at every debate now. She refuses, absolutely refuses to say that she's going to raise taxes on the middle class. She will not say it. Now, props to Bernie, because he will actually come out and say, yeah, your taxes are going to go up. Of course, and he says that in, in all reality, your expenses will be lower. But it's just this weird thing that Elizabeth Warren literally refuses to say the words and it's i'll just play it real quick and this is just from last night this has been in every debate we should put one together with all of them but i'll get on the i'll get on our production team to put that together for you here she is last night not saying that she's going to raise taxes 
Medicare, eliminating most Americans' college debt, and you've said how you're going to pay for those plans, but you have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle class families, costs will go down. Uh, for costs for middle class families. Mayor Buttigieg, you say Senator Warren has been, quote, evasive about how she's going to pay for Medicare for all. What's your response? Well, we heard it tonight, a yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Senator Warren, would, will way. you um, acknowledge what the senator just said about taxes going up? So my view on this and what I have committed to is costs will go down for hardworking middle class families. I will not embrace a plan like Medicare for all who can afford it that will leave behind millions of people who cannot. And I will not embrace a plan that says people have great insurance right up until you get the diagnosis and the insurance company says, sorry, we're not covering your expensive cancer treatments. We're not covering your expensive treatments Thank you, for Senator. MS. We're Senator not covering Klobuchar. what you need. At least Bernie's being honest here and saying how he's going to pay for this and that taxes are going to go up. And I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you have not said that. And I think we owe it to the American people to tell them where we're going to send the invoice. Okay, so as you guys can tell, her campaign team has told her specifically, do not say that you're going to raise taxes. And I want to go, I, I haven't dug into this yet, but I'm suspecting that there hasn't been anyone elected in, in the past that went in to the election saying that they were going to raise taxes on the middle class. I don't know if anyone's ever now plenty of people have said that taxes are going to go up but it's always on the rich it's always on the wealthy it's always on corporations and what she's going to do what she's going to have to do is raise taxes on the middle class what people don't realize is that when you point to the Scandinavian countries and talk about their healthcare system you have to remember that they're the middle class in Denmark pay a 60% income tax, 60% income tax. And then on top of that, the entire country has a 25% sales tax. And Elizabeth Warren doesn't want to talk about this. Now, Bernie will at least say that that's what he's going to do. And it just makes me think, I don't know, Does it kind of points to how much of a politician and how manipulative Elizabeth Warren is, that she literally, I mean, everyone knows, everyone watching knows that the taxes are going to go up. She can say that and it won't be new information whatsoever. Everyone already knows that. All the Democrats that support her know that. But she literally refuses to say the words. And is it really just because she thinks people are that stupid? And if she doesn't say the words, raise taxes, if she doesn't say that, then then that's not going to trigger in their brain that taxes are going to go up? Or is it, I mean, is she really just that manipulative and she just won't say the words? I don't, I don't know. I guess they don't play well in, a, in elections. Like I said, I'll have to look that up. But then we get into the discussion about Medicare for All. This was all happening during the whole raise taxes but not raise taxes conversation. So we'll play that. Mayor, Mayor, respond. Sure. I don't think the American people are wrong. 
when they say that what they want is a choice. And the choice of Medicare for all who want it, which is affordable for everyone because we make sure that the subsidies are in place, allows you to get that health care. It's just better than Medicare for all, whether you want it or not. And I don't understand why you believe the only way to deliver affordable coverage to everybody is to obliterate private plans, kicking 150 million Americans off of their insurance in four short years when we could achieve that same big, bold goal. And once again, let's. OK, so um, Mayor Buttigieg's Buttigieg. Uh, Mayor Pete, I'll just call him Mayor Pete, that's better. Uh, Mayor Pete made a good point, honestly, and actually he had a good name for Medicare for All. It's actually Medicare for All, whether you want it or not. And that's really uh, that's really any government policy, really. It's, it's this government policy, whether you want it or not. And he's trying to make the point here that really only Sanders and Warren are saying that they're literally going to make private insurance illegal. Now, why would you want to do that? What, what's the purpose behind doing that? What's the harm if private insurance is so terrible and it's so expensive, then why would you have to make it illegal and force everyone onto Medicare for all? Why wouldn't you just create Medicare for all, and then everyone's just naturally going to get on it because it's so much better than private insurance. So uh, this is really something that the government has done uh, over the years for a really long time. I mean, there's little things just like just like looking at the post office. I know this is a weird example, but the government doesn't like competition in the things that they do. And this has been the case for hundreds of years when the post office is doing something. The post office, I don't know if you know this, but it's illegal for you to charge, I don't know what a stamp is these days. Let's just say 50 cents. I don't actually know what a stamp costs. Uh, let's just say a stamp is 50 cents. It's illegal for you to charge less than 50 cents to ship any kind of letter or anything like that. It's literally illegal. UPS and FedEx cannot do it. You can look it up. It's illegal for them to use your mailbox. The mailbox that you put in front of your house at your driveway only someone who works for the post office can touch that mailbox. They, they literally cannot put parcel post into your mailbox. So they, they do not like competition. The post office even knows that if they didn't have that law, if, they, if, if USPS did not have that law in place, then UPS and FedEx would completely run USPS out of town. They, that's just what the case would be. They have to keep that monopoly on parcel post. They do not want any competition on that, and they've outlawed competition on that. So there's a lot of reasons that they want to do that, especially with private insurance now. One of the main ones would be that the private insurance option could end up just being better than Medicare for All. It could even end up being cheaper for you than Medicare for All, which I, I think uh, inevitably it would be. And that's if you would be able to opt out. So let's just say you can do Medicare for all. You've got to sign up for a, and this is why they why they don't want to have it. But if you had the options, then you would also have the option to opt out of it. Because everyone's taxes, including the middle class especially, their taxes are going to have to go up to about 50% income taxes to pay for all of this stuff. And the problem is, if you have the ability to opt out and choose some other kind of provider, choose 
private insurance, well, then a lot of people are just going to opt out and not do Medicare for all, and then the whole plan doesn't work. That's that's why Obamacare made it illegal for you to not have insurance. They have to have everyone paying into the system. So the, the biggest thing is that they know that private insurance, at the end of the day, would still be cheaper than what they're going to be providing you with Medicare for all. It's also going to end up being faster. What you would probably have with this would be that eventually doctors, hospitals, all these people, they would come to prefer people who have private insurance over people who are using Medicare, uh, which is the case a lot of times already. And so they don't want that either, because then you have people who are on Medicare, and then you have people who have private insurance, and the doctors are choosing to give the people with private insurance uh, quicker appointments on everything, because they think they're going to get paid more, or they're going to get paid faster. There's going to be less bureaucracy to deal with when they're doing that. So there's a lot of reasons that they just don't want you to have the choice. But when you're talking to someone about this, if you're talking to one of your your liberal liberal leftist friends, whatever their political affiliation is, why wouldn't they want to allow competition? You have, try and get them to answer that. Why can't I just if if the Medicare for All is so much cheaper and such a better option, why can't I have the choice to choose between the two of them? And the fact that they're not going to allow you to have the choice to choose between the two of them tells you that they already know which one is better. They already know that. Or they would allow you to pick between the two. So let's hear, uh, this is Bernie spouting off a bunch of, uh, I don't know, incoherent uh, fallacies about what Medicare, all, uh, Medicare for All is going to cost. To be clear, under the Medicare for All bill that I wrote, premiums are gone. Co-payments are gone. Deductibles are gone. All out-of-pocket expenses are gone. We're going to do better than the Canadians do, and that is what they have managed to do. At the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people will save money on their health care bills. But I do think it is appropriate to acknowledge that taxes will go up. Okay, so this is him pitching Medicare for All. And it's an enticing message. I mean, don't you feel like that would just take a lot of, I don't know, kind of worry out of a lot of people's minds? Everything he just said, no premiums. You know, there's not going to be any bills. You don't ever have to worry about paying anything out of pocket for medical expenses whatsoever. It all sounds really enticing. It's especially enticing if you're someone who is sick or you have family members who are sick. Then it's very, very much enticing. Not so much if you're someone who's pretty healthy and you're trying to save up as much money as possible right now for other things. That's, that's not very enticing at all. You probably would rather uh, have the opportunity to buy a catastrophic health insurance plan from a health insurance provider, but those aren't really even legal anymore. So... When he talks about how we're going to take care of all the premiums, they're going to be gone. We're going to do better than Canada, which he actually said, we're going to do better than them. And we're always mentioning all of these Scandinavian countries, all these other, all these other people. When he says there's not going to be any premiums, remember, that doesn't mean you're not going to have any expenses. Expenses are going to go down for a lot of people who are using the healthcare system. If you're not someone who's using the healthcare system very much right now, your expenses are going to be astronomically higher than they are right now. 
And I know that that's not a good bet to never have health insurance or to never that you're never going to need to go to the doctor. That's obviously not the case. Eventually, you will have to go to the doctor for something. But for people who are not paying for any kind of health care expenses right now, their expenses are going to be just an, a crazy exponential amount of money higher because their taxes are going to have to go up. They'll start them... They'll start them at 30%. You know, maybe people are paying 25. So they'll have to raise it up to 30, and then they'll go 35 and 40 and 45 and 50. And they'll have to keep raising it uh, after every year when they continue to come short on their budget, which the uh, the government really always does. So they're going to have to raise the taxes a lot. And then when, when we're comparing with these other countries – when you have people talking to you about these other countries and their and their health programs, first off, yes, you have to mention the fact that they pay a crazy amount of money in taxes. Okay, that's that's one thing. Another thing you can mention is the quality of care or wait times that those people have to have. I pulled up some information on the the average wait times. So, this is a percentage of the country who are waiting for two months or more to get with a specialist. In the U.S., 6% of the country waits two months or more to get with a specialist. That's 6% of the country. In Canada, 29% of the country, of people using the medical system, 29% of them have to wait at least two months or more before they can see a specialist. 29% 29, 29% of the country. So when we're looking at the U.S. versus Canada, we can go by uh, different fields. So OBGYN, uh, this is for average wait times for the specialty care. This is the average wait time in days. Uh, for OBGYN, the U.S. average wait time in days is 27.5 days. For Canada, the average wait time is 57 days. For cardio specialists in the U.S., the average wait time is 15 days. In Canada, the average wait time is 25 days. For ortho, you know, now we're getting into possibly some elective surgeries here. For ortho in the United States, the average wait time is 16 days. In Canada, 120 days average wait time for ortho specialists. So... It's then when you look at across all specialties, the average wait time for the U.S. is 20 days and the average wait time in Canada is 62 days. Now, that might not always be terrible, but it could be life or death for a lot of people. It really could. So that's something that we that we really have to take a look at. Now, when you talk about people who are waiting four months or more for an elective surgery, once again, I just pulled up some more graphs here. Uh, this was, let's see, the United States. They're right at that 6% number uh, on this other graph. And then we have the United Kingdom. 6% of the people in the United States are waiting four months or more for an elective surgery. 6%. In the United Kingdom, that number is 21% of the country is waiting four months or more for an elective surgery. So there's, it's not just automatically perfect. You know, U.S., once again, 6% are waiting four months or more. In Canada, 
That is actually 26% are waiting four months or more for elective surgeries. 26% of the country. So these are these are real numbers, actual real numbers that people, I don't know, you can bring up when you're talking to people. This is a wait time from the time that you go to your general practitioner to the time that you actually receive treatment. In some places, provinces in Canada, you're talking about 40 weeks, 40 weeks in Canada, wait time from the time that you go to the doctor to the time that you can receive treatment, 40 weeks. That's almost a year, okay? So there's a lot of things that we can bring up when we're comparing the healthcare between different countries. It's not all just, you know, rainbows and roses like they want to make it out to be. Another obvious thing that I bring up all the time, and to me this is one of the biggest things economic-wise, when you're talking about a country the size of Denmark, you have to realize how small Denmark is. You know, when we think about a country, we have this image of a country in our head, and we're thinking about the United States. It's a massive country compared to a lot of other countries in the world, most other countries. It's a massive country. But when we're talking about Denmark or, you know, Britain or one of the England, one of these countries, uh, when we're talking about them, they're very small. They're smaller than a lot of our states, actually. A lot of our U.S. states are bigger than their entire countries. Denmark, their population, their entire population is about the size of New York City. Just one city in the U.S. So when they talk about how they can perfectly give health care to all these people, which we know it's not perfect, and they can run this nice welfare state system, they're actually talking on a city level compared to the United States, on a city level, not an entire national government level. When we look at Canada and we talk about how nice their, how nice their medical plan is, they've got the same population of the state of California, just one state, just one U.S. state. And then we seem to think that we can transfer their system that's working for a much smaller population, and we can make it work for 330 million people. There are no countries that have done this. They have no examples of people actually giving a free healthcare plan to this many people at one point in time, at one time. There is no example that they can point to. They can point to other countries that tried it and then failed miserably, but then they'll give you all kinds of excuses on why they failed and it wasn't because of socialism and all that. <clears throat> so make sure that we're making accurate comparisons. You can't just compare Denmark and the United States of America. You're talking about a population of like 12 million and then a population of 330 million. Think about the differences in size. You know, when you're, when you're having your little government bureaucracy and all your administrative duties and everything, which one do you think would have a more efficient administration? Uh, a city government or a government that is spanning 2,000 miles from end to end and taking care of 330 million people? Which one do you think is going to have a more efficient government? This is why we set up our country in the way it's set up anyway. If we would have left it that way, that would be a good direction to go for sure. 
This is why we set it up this way, where we have our city governments and our county governments and our state governments. And they're all supposed to be just their own little governments and, and you know, the smallest local government, that's, that's the best one that you can have. So if you're talking to one of these democratic socialists, if you're talking to one of them, why don't you just say, okay, I, I think that we should try your plan in an area that is the size of Denmark. Just give them that. Sure. Sure. Let's try it. That means one city government in the United States should try this plan. Not the entire federal government. And let's just see how that goes. It's easy to move in and out of a city. If you hate it, you can leave. No problem. Let's just do that. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look into the data from that. We've already seen that different states have tried to do this, and they're running grossly over budget, underfunded, and looking at bankruptcy already. So we've already seen it fail on sizes bigger than Denmark already in some of our U.S. states. So it's not just automatic that this is going to work. That's the, that's the point I'm trying to get across. You can't just let them decide that this is somehow automatically going to work. Okay, so, all right, we'll shift from healthcare for one minute here. And I'm just going to mention something that this guy, you know, there's 12 people up there. I do not know all of their names. I think this guy's name is uh, Tom Steyer, 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 something like that. So anyway, uh, he was talking about breaking up the big tech monopolies. Ooh, big tech. You put big before something, it gets bad automatically. So let's see what he had to say about that. In fact, monopolies have to be dealt with. They either have to be broken up or regulated, and that's part of it. But we have to understand that Mr. Trump is going to be running on the economy. He's going to be saying he's the person who can make it grow. I started a business from scratch, one room, no employers, and built a... Okay, we'll just stop there. That's fine. Okay, so the big tech monopolies. Now, uh, monopoly is a word that we that we pick on a lot because people just like to say the word monopoly. I don't think anyone ever puts any <clears throat> thought behind what that actually means. I mean, first off, the uh, mono, that means one automatically. It's It needs to be one. So I have a hard time picking out a big tech monopoly in any industry that there is. If it's social media, if it's video, if it's searches, if it's uh, you know electronic devices, can you guys tell me a monopoly? Can you guys tell me the, the, the industry where there's only one company that you can go to? Literally, there's only one of them. Can, do, do we have any examples of that at all? So first off, they're not even monopolies. And even if there was only one, would that be, there's a difference in whether or not that's because they're just so much better than everyone else and they're providing a better service to everyone and cheaper and more efficiently and everyone just loves that service. And every time a new business tries to pop up, they're not as good. They're not as cheap. And so they don't, they don't ever end up making it. And we just go back to the one that continues to do it better than anyone else. Uh, that's not automatically bad, by the way. It's not just uh, it's not just obvious that if something more expensive and more inefficient and less easy to use popped up, that everyone would just naturally gravitate towards it. 
That's uh, that's would that make it better for everyone? No, that doesn't make it better at all. So first off, we have to define a monopoly when we're talking about monopolies. It's not just your percentage of the market share, because like I just said, that could purely be gained because you really do offer the best product at the best price and everyone loves it. So you cannot demonize that as a monopoly. I mean, what's the outcome you're looking for there? The take away what everyone has decided is the best thing? That, that doesn't sound better. What would actually make a monopoly is if a company grew and then was able to stop other companies from being able to come into that market. Does this exist in this in in the tech market at all? Can I not start my own social networking site? There's new there's new networking sites popping up all the time. There's a few different ones that I've tried to get on and use, and I haven't really gotten into them yet, or haven't really figured them out yet. There's one called Minds, Minds M I N D S. I don't know if you guys use that. Uh, one of our listeners sent it over to us. Um, it looks really cool, but I have not figured out how to use it yet. But the one thing I do know is that that company did not exist like 20 years ago before Facebook did. That company came up while Facebook existed already. Facebook came up while MySpace existed already and Friendster and all of these other sites. None of them are monopolies. They're not able to stop other people from coming into the market. If anything, they're doing it better and everyone has decided that that's who they want to use. I mean, can I not start my own video hosting website? Can I not get a business loan and and rent out a whole bunch of servers and start a website where people can upload their videos and I can write an algorithm that suggests other people's videos to you all the time? Is there someone stopping me from doing that? Is there anyone stopping you from doing that? No. Then how is YouTube a monopoly? Do you guys all use Google to search things on your phone? I don't. I use, what is it, DuckDuckGo or something like that. I use that or I use Bing. I, I, I don't know if Google can be considered a monopoly when I literally don't use them to do the thing that they made all their money doing. How are they a monopoly? Do you guys, when you go to search something, when you go to search something, do you get on there and your phone's like, you can only use Google. That's it. There are no other options. You cannot go to any other websites and search things. No. Then how is Google a monopoly? Just so throwing around this name monopoly I don't know. It's just a polit- it's just a favorite political term right now. It's a, it's a really popular political word that people like to say, but it doesn't really mean anything. So just be careful when they're when they're saying that. And one last thing about the social media companies and oversight into those companies. We don't want the government to be doing anything involving regulation over these tech companies. I mean that. I really mean that. Even if they are potentially censoring people right now or something like that, I, I'm sure that does happen. Number one, it's their business. You don't have the right to dictate how they are going to provide you that service. Uh, it's their business. If they don't like your content, 
then they can choose to not put it on their website. If you want to host your content, then build your own website and run advertisements to get people to your website. Don't dictate that someone else puts your content out to a certain amount of people just because they have to. It doesn't matter what their political reasoning is behind it. I don't agree with it. I'm not saying that I agree with YouTube potentially censoring Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or anyone like that. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. But once again, Jordan Peterson's doing what you're supposed to do if you're upset with that. Jordan Peterson starting, uh, along with a few other people, uh, his own website, his own social media platform, his own content platform uh, called ThinkSpot is what it's called. He's not going to the government and asking that they regulate the companies because that's not the answer. It's never the answer because maybe right now, let's just say you're a Republican listening to this or you lean to the right a little bit. Right now, you're doing what a lot of people do. There's a Republican in charge. They can get this government, that they can use the government to get these big tech companies online and stop censoring the content that I like. Okay, here's the problem. You didn't give Donald Trump or the Republicans in the Senate or the people in the House, you did not give them power. You gave the U.S. government power to dictate to companies their content, and how they provide it to people. Will you feel just as at ease about the government having control over social media content if President Elizabeth Warren is in office? If Elizabeth Warren is the president, will you feel better or worse that the U.S. government can dictate content on social media platforms? In any way, shape, or form, will you feel better or worse? The answer is worse. That's how you would feel. You would not like it. You would assume that they would be censoring all kinds of content. You know, 1984, George Orwell's coming out of the shadows, and we're we're censoring all this stuff. We're we're just like China. We're not letting all the the talk get out there about freedom and liberty, and this must be stopped. The government's overreaching everything. This is where it starts. This is where it always starts, is right here at some simple little request. Hey, they're censoring my website, and I want you to, I really want you to regulate them and make sure they can't do that. Okay, that's how it starts. That's how it always starts with this. And then it turns into this massive government agency that's got a billion different rules and regulations about what you can and can't post online. That's what it turns into. You don't want it. If you don't like what Google and Facebook are doing, then start your own freaking website or stop using those websites. You don't have a right to their website. You do not have a right to put what you want into their property at all. Just bottom line. Okay, so now we're going to get to the billionaires, the evil, rich, greedy, terrible billionaires. So I pulled a couple videos about this, and one of these is Beto talking to Elizabeth Warren. Um, He's talking to her about how she's dividing the country. She's giving people someone to hate, and what we really need to be doing is finding a way to bring people together. And that's all fine, except for Beto is a complete hypocrite, obviously, in saying that. But it still makes a good point about the way that she speaks about 
billionaires. So I wanted to play that real quick. Senator Warren is, is more focused on being punitive or, or pitting some part of the country against the other. Um, instead of lifting people up and making sure that this country comes together around those solutions. I'm really shocked at the notion that anyone thinks I'm punitive. Uh, look, I don't have a beef with billionaires. My problem is you made a fortune in America. You had a great idea. You got out there and worked for it. Good for you. But you built that fortune in America, I guarantee you built it in part using workers all of us help pay to educate. You built it in part getting your goods to market on roads and bridges all of us help pay for. You built it at least in part protected by police and firefighters all of us help pay the salaries for. And all I'm saying is you make it to the top, the top one-tenth of one percent, then pitch in two cents so every other kid in America has a chance to Senator, make it. Thank you. So uh, a couple, uh, a few quick points on that. On the first one, she just said she's throwing out this pitch in two cents plan as if it's going to solve everything. That won't solve everything. In fact, if you took all of the money that not even just the one tenth of one percent earn, the one percent earn, if you took all of their money. It would not be enough money to run the government for even a year. Actually, under her plan or Sanders' plan or a lot of these people, it wouldn't even be enough to run the government for three or four months. So it doesn't matter what you know, kind of common sense, little chip in, chip in two cents and we'll solve everything in the world kind of plan that she wants to, to talk about. It's simply not true if you care about math, which a lot of these people just really don't. So another thing on that, Beto was right about what he was saying. She really is creating more hatred. We have a class warfare thing going on right now. It's the you know the poor working people against the rich people, which has been a common theme throughout all of humanity. Uh, it's apparently just a natural trait. But anyway, she is creating more hatred. She's not talking about how we can all work together, really. And, I mean... You know she's creating hatred. You know that there's going to be violence. You see these people rising up and setting fires and having riots and punching people at you know protests and stuff like that. They're all doing it because of this hatred that's been drummed up by her and Elizabeth Warren and AOC and all these people throughout our country's history about the evil rich people. When you're literally telling people that people are dying because of the billionaires, then eventually the billionaires will be treated like they are murderers. That's what it's going to lead to eventually. You are telling the American public that successful people in our country are the same as any other murderer. That's what they're saying. Now they're saying it like a politician says it, but essentially that's what they're saying. So you can't act like that's not going to create hatred between people. Like that's not going to cause violence in our society. It absolutely does. And the other thing, she went into the um, the old Obama, you didn't build that speech about how, yeah, okay, you made a bunch of money, but you did it using people who were educated with our money or used it. You used our roads that that we paid for. Use our police and fire that the people paid for. 
And I get that argument. I'm not saying that billionaires shouldn't do what they can to help people. I mean, I think that that's just a natural state of capitalism. You have to help people and give people what they want if you want to make money. But more so on that point, this you used our roads that we paid for. Okay, how did you pay for those roads? It was through taxation. Through taxation of what? It was through taxation of your income. Okay. Your income from what? Oh, your job. Okay. Who created your job? Oh, that's right. The evil billionaire. So, I always talk about this, and I always call it this chicken or the egg scenario. We've always had this question, this philosophical question, which came first? What came first, the chicken or the egg? So when we're talking about what comes first, the workers who work at a business, or in this case, pay taxes and build the roads, what comes first, those people, or is it the people who create jobs? And you have a clear answer. You have an absolutely clear answer in this chicken or egg scenario. Sure, you had to have people work at your business for it to grow. You had to have people pay taxes to build roads so the roads would be there. But what created the opportunity for people to be able to do that? It was the person who decided that they were going to risk everything and work 100 hours a week and work nights and weekends and neglect their family and their loved ones and put all of their time and effort into creating some kind of business. And maybe it was just out of pure greed and just they just really wanted to have the most money and all the, all the cool stuff, that doesn't matter because we all benefit from it. So what matters there is the outcome, not really the reason that they did it. And the outcome has been overwhelmingly good for people. If you look at the natural state of poverty in the U.S. today versus poverty in the U.S. 100 years ago, okay? So when she's talking about we you didn't build that. We built that. Okay, just remember, those were taxes that came from your income. Your income that you would not have had if someone would not have started the business that gave you the opportunity to create value in society. Okay? So in our chicken or the egg scenario, we know which one comes first. It's the person who creates that business, who creates the production, who puts in the work and the capital to do that. That has to happen before anything else. That's why we do anything we anything that I push, anything that Charlie and I talk about on this program all the time, is making sure we can do everything we can to incentivize that production, not the consumption. Because the production has to happen first. We've got a very backwards ideology, a very backwards mindset on how this works. You cannot consume what has not already been produced. Production has to happen first. So we need to take away all of the laws, all the regulations, all the rules that hamper people's ability to produce things. Okay? Okay, so we'll go into what is... The last video that I pulled up here, the last clip, 
Um, it's, it's, it's some time, got some minutes in this video, but I want to go over this conversation overall that we're having about billionaires and these rich people in our society. Um, the basic idea here that Bernie Sanders is outright saying is that billionaires should not exist. This is a mentality that a lot of people have in our society. And it's a very, very dangerous mentality, but I want to hear how they, how they talk about this, and then we'll talk about the, maybe some good responses for it. Income inequality is growing in the United States at an alarming rate. The top 1% now own more of this nation's wealth than the bottom 90% combined. Senator Sanders. When you introduced your wealth tax, which would tax the assets of the wealthiest Americans, you said, quoting you, Senator, billionaires should not exist. Is the goal of your plan to tax billionaires out of existence? When you have a half a million Americans sleeping out on the street today, when you have 87 people, 87 million people uninsured or underinsured, when you got hundreds of thousands of kids who cannot afford to go to college and millions struggling with the oppressive burden of student debt. And then you also have three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society. That is a moral and economic outrage. And the truth is we cannot afford to continue this level of income and wealth inequality, and we cannot afford a billionaire class whose greed and corruption has been at war with the working families of this country for 45 years. Okay, I really think that's all I have to play from that video. So this idea, and by the way, my, my heart rate and my blood pressure tend to spike anytime that I hear Bernie Sanders talking, so you'll have to give me a minute to kind of calm down here. But this idea... Billionaires shouldn't exist. And he goes through, like most politicians, they're really good at tugging on your heartstrings, talking about how we have half a million people that are homeless. We've got 87 million people that are uninsured or underinsured. We've got all these things in our society. We've got three people that own more wealth, whatever that means. We've got three people that own more wealth than the bottom half of our country. When we have a system set up like this that we just can't afford it. And this is a really, really dangerous, really dangerous ideology. We've seen this play out before in the past. What does it mean to be a billionaire in a free market system, which hopefully we'll have again someday? And what does it mean to even have money? What does that, what does that mean? When you have money, that means that you, you gave people some kind of value. You provided them with something that they valued. And what I want to know is, would our society just automatically be better off if we didn't have any billionaires? What's, what's better about our society, especially if those billionaires obtain that wealth by creating value for people in the society? You know, if the billionaires and the millionaires, which Bernie won't talk about anymore since he is one now, if those are the people who are creating all of the things that we have, our 
phones and our laptops and our cars and our food, everything. If those are the people who are creating everything, then how is our society automatically going to be better in a world where we don't have any billionaires? What does that mean at that point in time? First off, I want to go through a few a few different myths about wealth and, and wealth redistribution. So this idea that we can take all the money that the billionaires have and we'll just spread it out among everyone, right? And then we'll all be better. First off, that's just going to cause a lot of inflation. First, let's just say you actually did it and you took all their money and you just gave it to all the people. The problem there is right now, everyone is kind of clamoring for resources, for, for goods and services, and everyone's trying to get their hands on as many of those goods and services as they can. If you take all the money that the billionaires have and you divide it out among everyone, what actually happens at that point is it's not that you can afford to buy more goods and services. That's not really what happens because those are that's not an unlimited resource. People have to create those things. If you divide out this money, you would just have inflation. If you give it all out and you don't incentivize production and produce more goods, all that's going to happen is people are going to have the same available resources and a lot more money. And then all of those resources are just going to get more expensive. That's just what's going to happen. That's what has always happened in the past. That's economics, whether you like it or not. We do not live in a system of emotionomics. We have to live under economics, and there's not a lot you can do to really control basic economics. There, I got in my one time to say basic economics in this podcast. It's a long book, but if you guys have not read basic economics, I have done it eight times now. Favorite book, most important book I've ever read. Go read Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. So a a few of the myths here. First off, you, you can't just spread out all the money. That would just cause inflation. That would automatically mean that you can just get more things. That's not what's going to happen. And the other thing is that there's not even enough money out there to pay for all the things that these that these politicians are saying that you have a right to. All these things that they say you have a right to have to be provided by other people. And they're saying that you have a right to these services provided by other people. And the problem is there's not even enough money among the wealthy to pay for all of those things for everyone this year, even this year, right now, there's not enough money. So you have to first attack this problem from the fact that on its face, on its head, right there at the surface, mathematically, this does not work, no matter how much you want it to work. Mathematically, it does not work. Economics is a unspoken rule uh, you know, uh, supply and demand, that's just something that exists. It's something that we've studied. It just exists. It's the way that people interact with each other. It's the way that markets work. You can't change that. So no matter how much you care deeply about everyone and all the things that you think that they should be entitled to, it does not change the underlying reality that it is not possible. It doesn't change that. So if, you, if that argument doesn't work, then I guess you can go through something else. 
What about all this hoarding, right? I mean, uh, Milton Friedman did a really good job on this when uh, someone asked him about the wealth hoarding all of their money. And he just asked his lady, um, what do you mean they're hoarding? What do you mean they're hoarding it? Are they keeping it in their house? Is it under, under their mattress? What do you mean? So there's this idea that all these wealthy people, they have all this money and it's separated from the economy. It's separated from society and they're just holding on to it and they just use it whenever they want to. And they're just making sure that they can, they can buy everything they ever want and they're just holding back this money from everyone. When in fact, that's not what happens at all. Most of those people invest a lot of their wealth in new technologies and new innovations and growing businesses in ways to make more money. And by the way, ways to make more money can also be stated as ways to provide value to society, ways to provide more value to society. So when they're investing in ways to provide more value to society, number one, that's not a bad thing. It's already not a bad thing. So they're not holding the money back. They're not just keeping it away from everyone. A lot of times they're investing it in different industries. If they're not doing anything with the money, it's at least sitting in a bank. And what do we know about But What's one thing banks really like to do? When you go and buy a, when you go and buy a house, do you go to the person who's selling the house and say, Hey, I've got $250,000 on me right here in this bag. And I'm just going to go ahead and buy this house from you. No, that's not what happens. More than likely, you didn't have much more than your down payment, if you even had that. And then you had to go to a bank. So the bank would buy your house from the person who was selling the house, and then you could pay the bank back over time. What does that mean? Where did the bank get the money to buy your house for you? Where did they get the money that they gave to the person who built the house or who's selling the house. A lot of it gets created out of thin air. I know, fractional reserve banking. But a portion of it came from that evil wealth hoarder who put their money in the bank. And then when you needed a car, you went to the bank and said, hey, bank, I would like to buy a car, but I don't have the money to buy a car. So the bank bought the car for you. And then you're going to pay them off over time so you can have the car. You wanted to buy a house. So you said, hey, bank, I don't have the money to buy a house. So the bank bought the house for you. And then you're going to pay them back the money over time. They got that money from people in this evil billionaire class who have value and wealth that they've put in their bank account. And then the bank turned around and loaned that money out to you so you could get things that you can't afford. That's, that's one way of looking at it. Maybe you want to start your business. Where did they get the money for the business loan? That evil other business owner who put all of their evil, terrible profits into the bank, well, that money got turned around and used to give to you so you could have a chance at creating your own business. That's how evil and terrible that person was. So already this wealth hoarding thing, when you have someone mentioning this, it's not a real thing. It's literally not a real thing. Maybe there are some people who have stacks of cash in their house. 
those are probably drug dealers and drug lords, money launderers. Anyone who is good with money will, is not just going to keep their money sitting in stacks of cash in their house. They're going to put it in a bank at least so you can earn some kind of interest rate on it. They're going to buy a U.S. Treasury bond or something so they can keep it consistent with inflation. Or they're going to take it and they're going to invest it in businesses. So wealth hoarding, not a thing, okay? The other thing, to me, this is the biggest myth about wealth. When we talk about, you know, he's mentioning these three people. I'm assuming, let's just, well, I'll assume Jeff Bezos is one of them. And he's worth, I don't know, after his divorce, <laughs> let's just say he's worth like $100 billion. I don't know if they have new numbers on that because his wife did take about half of everything. Automatically made her one of the richest people in the world. Ex-wife. Um, so anyway, Jeff Bezos' wealth what does that mean? People have this idea that these rich people, these billionaires, just have $100 billion sitting in the bank. That's not the case at all. In fact, about 90% of Jeff Bezos's wealth is just represented by the amount of shares that he owns of Amazon. So, he doesn't even actually have the money in the first place. Where did the value of those shares come from? Where did the value of Amazon come from? The value of Amazon came from people in the market that are investing and giving their money to Amazon so Amazon can expand and so they can make money off of their investments. That's what the stock market is. The value of Amazon represents the people around the world and in our country, who have decided to give their money to Amazon and purchase shares of the company. Meaning that as that share price got driven up, and as Bezos got richer and richer because he owned that fixed amount of shares, it's 18% or whatever it was, as he got richer and richer, it wasn't even his money. It wasn't like he was just scraping off profits all the time and putting it in his bank account. The only reason he got richer was because other people were giving him their money so they could make money off of investments. And when you talk about the wealth that Jeff Bezos has, you are actually talking about 90% of his money is actually other people's money that has been put in to the stocks of his company. It's not even his he can't even sell all of his shares. We, we've done some episodes on that. If he sold his shares, Amazon's stock price would crash because he owns so many shares and there is not enough demand for all of those shares right now. Think, if he's got $100 billion worth of Amazon stock, who's going to buy that? He's the richest person in the world. Who's going to buy the stock from him? So when he dumps all of his shares to get this money, who's going to buy it? What's going to happen is the stock price is going to shoot straight down to the bottom to the price that enough people can afford to buy shares in the company. So one thing, the wealth isn't even actually there. It's represented in pieces of paper that say Amazon stock, one share. I'm sure he's got millions of them. But that's where the wealth is. 
It's in other people putting their money and investments into that company. So when you talk about a wealth tax, when you talk about taxing Jeff Bezos' wealth, are you talking about the money that he has in the bank, which would be like $10 billion? $10 billion? Or are you talking about what his technical wealth is that would be like $100 billion? If you're talking about his technical wealth and you're going to tax that at 8% or whatever Bernie wants to do, Jeff Bezos has got to start selling shares of Amazon to pay that because he doesn't even actually have the money. It's other people's money that he has. And as he sells his shares, the stock price is going to rocket down to the floor, making a million other people poorer in the process. We all talk about these stock market people. We talked yesterday on the show. What do you envision? Evil, rich, white guy, smoking a cigar, drinking bourbon, feet up on the desk in an office that's got floor-to-ceiling windows somewhere over Manhattan. That is some people in the stock market. Most people in the stock market are like your parents or you or school teachers and police officers, people with pensions, people with 401ks, people with IRAs. People investing their retirement. Those are the people that have put their money into Amazon. And their value is going to rocket down to the floor at the same time that Amazon's shooting straight down because of, because of Bernie Sanders' wealth tax. Because Bezos has got to pull that money that people have given him in investments into the company. He's got to pull it from those people to give it to the government. Not from himself. He's got to pull it from those people because that's where the money is. So there's a lot of myths behind this wealth, this idea that these people have so the Waltons are worth $180 billion or something like that. Almost all of that money is because they own 51% of Walmart. They don't actually have that money. It's represented by investments into Walmart they would have to rake investors over the coals and completely kill their retirement plans and their investments to try and pull money out of Walmart to pay off this wealth tax. It would not be good. Bernie Sanders has got about two or three or four or five different plans that would completely destroy the stock market. I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but the stock market's already inflated and fake as it is. Once all these people realize that everyone's going to have to start withdrawing their money so they can pay the wealth tax. Everyone's going to sell everything they have because they all know it's going to go down, which will cause it to go down. Self-fulfilling prophecy there, but that's what's going to happen. And as it goes down to pay the wealth tax, Bezos or the Waltons will have to sell more and more shares of stock because their shares of stock are going to be less and less valuable. Anyway, it's a really, really bad system. Guys, this is... This is all really dangerous stuff. This has happened in the past. I'm not just trying to sit here and be some kind of a crazy alarmist or anything like this, but this this idea, this hating the rich, this idea that the the wealthy people in your society are the reason that you have a hard life, this has been around for a long time. I think it's just the natural trait of human beings. Even think, I mean... We've, you know, we've talked a lot about how parenting has kind of gone haywire. I mean, when you're a kid, think about 
Think about how a kid acts. A kid just wants more of everything. A kid wants everything they can see. A kid throws a fit when they can't have something that isn't theirs or that someone else won't give them. There's a good chance that we have stopped stopped the parenting aspects that remove that from people's minds, that remove that ideology from people's minds. What we have are a lot of adult children who are still throwing a fit about the things that they want and they can't have instead of getting out there and trying to earn it. We can't fix this with just an election, by the way. If you're a Donald Trump supporter, you know, whoever you're supporting, Libertarian Party, someone else in the Republican Party, you're not going to fix this with elections. You can hold the government back some by trying to keep people in office that will not allow the government to continue growing or that will at least slow down the growth of the government, I guess. But you're not going to fix it with an election. This is like a down-to-your-bones core value. This is, this is implanted deep inside your brain. It's not something where just you're going to have Trump wins re-election and then all of a sudden all the socialists go away and no one wants any socialism anymore. That's not what's going to happen. It's just going to get worse. It's just going to keep getting worse. The only thing that we can do, because you really can't, I mean, I don't want to go to a, we're not going to go to a war. That's a terrible option. The only thing we can do is continue to push the free market. Continue to make sure that as many free market things are done as possible, that we pinpoint and we talk about everything that is done in the free market that is amazing all the time. Anytime we see something done in the free market by an evil, greedy capitalist business owner that is helping people, some kind of new way of helping people, we need to make sure that we're talking about it. We are the people who are pushing free market capitalism, and we need to make sure that we are not just talking down to other people's ideologies. We need to be telling people why our ideology is the best, how our ideology actually helps the most amount of people. Because there's this misconception that libertarians like myself are just selfish and we don't care about other people. And as long as we get what we want, we don't care about the poor people or the people who can't get health care. That's completely wrong. It's completely the opposite. I do care about poor people. I do want people to get off the streets. I don't want anyone to not be able to afford medical care. I don't want anyone to grow up in terrible, poor circumstances. And that's why I'm a libertarian. That's why I push for the free market, because I do care about those things. You've got to make sure that you're out there making that point all the time. It's our only ammo against this. The free market is making things more and more amazing for us every single day. Look at our standard of living versus 100 years ago. That's not just something that naturally happens over time. We've grown to believe that this just naturally happens over time. But actually, throughout all of existence, through the thousands and thousands to maybe millions of years that humans have been here, I think scientists say it's like 300,000, something like that. Throughout all those years, humanity really just looked the same the whole time. You know, maybe they had, okay, they got some fire, started to use some tools, you know, stuff like that, invented the wheel at one point in time. Then he just kind of looked the same for a while. The, the new processing ways, things have 
building buildings and things like that. You can just kind of imagine this timeline and the technology and the standard of living really just pretty flat for like 299,750 years. And then all of a sudden, like 200, 250 years ago, that line on that chart that you're imagining just skyrocketed straight up. It's not a coincidence that that happened. Capitalism, the ability to create value for other people, our ability to seek the things that we value and to only get those things if we give other people things that they value, this idea has saved countless millions of lives that would have died for some other reason had we not invented all of these amazing technologies. Even the technologies that people in these other countries have. Most of them were invented in the U.S. You're welcome for flight and the internet and the computer and the cell phone and the affordable automobile and a whole bunch of medical technologies. You're welcome, world, for all of those things. Now you can give them out to people for free, but we're the ones that had to create it. Why did all those things come from America and not other countries? What inventions from Denmark do you use on a daily basis? What's your favorite Danish invention that you cannot go a day without? No clue. Probably isn't one. Why is that? Why is that? So guys, make that argument to people. Visit our website, BernieLies.com. I recently revamped it yesterday. Uh, goes line by line through each one of Bernie Sanders' different policies and gives some really good responses to the things that he uh, puts out there all the time. So go check out BernieLies.com. Uh, find us on Instagram. Follow us at Good Morning Liberty. Follow us on Twitter at Good AM Liberty. Uh, look us up on Facebook, Good Morning Liberty. Thank you so much for sharing everything. We are right out. We are right at reaching a million people from our Facebook. And that's only because you guys have been sharing all of our stuff all the time. Our articles from the website, our videos that we make, our dank memes that we're posting all the time. That's just because of you guys sharing it and getting this message out there. So keep doing that for us, okay? You can go to our website. You can find our merch store. We've got shirts that say, shall not be infringed. Taxation is theft, of course. Capitalism greater than socialism. All kinds of good shirts on our merch store. You can go to gmlconnect.com, and it will take you straight to that merch store. Any money that comes from that, we just put right back in the advertisements for the show. Or we put it into anything that has to do with getting this message out there. We don't take any of it personally. So anyway, we really appreciate it, guys. If you do all of those things, I will be right back here tomorrow once again by myself doing this again. Um, you guys have a good day. And a good morning, Liberty.